Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Dear brothers and sisters, welcome to this Ilm Feed podcast episode, which is taking place online, in which my guest happens to be one of the teachers I've benefited from over the years. We'll be discussing some of the matters that we would like to know the answers to, the big picture matters. Today, alhamdulillah, I have a special guest. My guest today is Islamic theologian and scholar, Sheikh Yasser Qadi. Assalamu alaikum. alaikum wa rahmatullah. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah. Bikhair, Sheikh. Sheikh Yasser is Dean of Academic Affairs at the Islamic Seminary of America. And before that, you know, he completed his PhD at Yale. And also, even before that, his uh, undergraduate and postgraduate study at the Islamic University of Medina. Jazakallah khairan, Sheikh, for joining us. Um, Alhamdulillah, thank you for having me on your show. Alhamdulillah. I'm proud, by the way, to uh, know you as a student for, when was the first class you took? 15? Is that 12 years? I mean, it's been a long time, right, in London. So Alhamdulillah, I'm proud to see you as well, uh, you know, accomplish Alhamdulillah a lot and have your own uh, articles and podcasts and doing a lot of da'wah. And of course, you come from a family of knowledge. So Alhamdulillah, this is to be expected, Alhamdulillah, from uh, someone of your uh, background. Alhamdulillah. So I'm proud to be on your show and I'm Happy to see all the good that you're doing. Oh, Jazakallah khairan, Sheikh. Yeah, I was actually going to start by saying, I think our paths first crossed um, actually on Hajj, which was Hajj of, um, must have been 2000, I think, uh, when you were a student. That. Okay. You don't <laughs> remember I did that. Hajj every, but I, did, I didn't know you did Hajj with me. Okay, mashallah. Yeah, oh. I, when I say our paths cross, I don't think, I don't mean literally, but um, I was there on that Hajj where you were one of the muallims mm. uh, for Al Hidayah. I don't know if you remember. Of course, and, I remember. Um, it's all a blur. Yeah. I've done more than, alhamdulillah, more Hajjs than I can remember. But yes, every year I would well, go uh, as a graduate student, um, and even my undergraduate years. So you, you did in the year 2000. Yeah, I believe it was 2000. And, I have no um, memory of the exact Hajj per se, but maybe yeah. some other time you can jar my memory about that particular year, alhamdulillah. Yeah, and you were you were doing the durus in the evenings, you know, in Medina, mm -hmm. and you were a student there, you, you and your wife were there, mashallah. Mm -hmm. um, so alhamdulillah, that was the first time. And then uh, I think the first proper class that I attended was Tafsir of Surah Yusuf, Masjid Tawheed, you did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my debut in London. I have a lot of fond memories. That was my first trip to London. And uh, yes, Masjid Tawheed, um, 2000, 2001, something like that. Yeah. Yes, I, I remember I was expecting. So, and then I named my son Yusuf. I named my that, son so. Yusuf. That was born after that class, too. <laughs> Subhanallah. So yeah. <laughs> It was a very um, inspiring class. And I remember you also did a talk about the slander of Aisha. Yes, I remember And that. ever since then, I've been very interested in the life of Aisha. Uh, so I've recently been teaching a course about her life in a, in a lot of detail. Hmm. And I think probably that was the beginning of, you know, that journey. So Jazakallah khairan for that. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, and recently, I think you're very soon going to be releasing a book about the Tafsir of Sir Yusuf. Actually, I just handed in the final edit, so inshallah ta'ala, um, it should be being, it should be uh, going to print literally within a week or so, inshallah. So 
expect it to be out very soon, inshallah. So this is going to be a book that is based upon over 20 years of going back to Tafsir Surah. So your class that the, that you attended, the class that I taught, was the first yeah. time that I professionally prepared, like, you know, go back to the Tafsirs and write it out myself. And ever mm-hmm. since then, I've taught it multiple times um, and, uh, you know, just uh, done it on, on the satellite channels in my masajid. That I've, Every city I've been in, I've done Surah Yusuf, every city for the last 20 years. So Alhamdulillah, um, I've read a lot of Tafsirs about Surah Yusuf and I've, had time to think about it so i'm very happy that um this book is coming out um uh it's been a long time since i've been excited about one of my books i, I have to be honest here a lot of times you write the book you're like okay I'm the, that's good but my dua book is still my favorite it has a soft spot in my heart and i think this is going to be my second favorite after that i really like emotionally investing like really thinking and and whatnot so this is that book. The dua book is also there. I mean, all of my books, alhamdulillah. But, you know, there's that extra that you really, you live the, the material, right? And yeah. uh, I think this, this surah has always been one of my favorites. So um, I'm, I'm, inshallah, optimistic that, inshallah ta'ala, uh, this book is going to serve or is going to, let's say, open up the opportunity for many Muslims to become reacquainted with this surah and to, inshallah, find benefit uh, from the tafsir tangents of it, inshallah. SubhanAllah, I think there's something amazing about uh, Surah Yusuf in that mm-hmm. every time I've studied it, so I've studied it a number of times with different shiuch at different stages of life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, the first time I, yeah, the first time I heard it was my dad on Umrah, like in Mecca years ago, you know, as a kid, my dad exposed us to this, he told us the story. And ever since then, every time I've we've covered it, mm-hmm. it's as if there are new lessons new openings new things you notice depending on what's happening in your life at the time it's uh, a story would you agree of, with that? It's, it's, it's a story of humanity the raw you know jealousy anger grief love passion everything like how can you not connect with some aspect and as you mm-hmm. go through the cycle of life you connect with different aspects right so subhanallah mm-hmm. the sinner will connect with the brothers of Yusuf, for example, right? You know, the one, you know, lusting is going to connect with the wife, you know. The one, uh, you know, losing a child or a parent is going to connect. So every single niche of society is going to have something in this. The one after power is going to be, you know, the king or the Aziz, whatever. So many different facets. It really, it's a it's a microcosm that, that uh, opens up the window of every single emotion that a parent feels, a child feels, a human being mm-hmm. feels. So... I'm, I'm uh, like you said, the surah has always resonated. And ironically, I actually just wrote the introduction two weeks ago of this book. And I mentioned in that introduction that Surah Yusuf was my introduction to the Quran as a 11 year old child. Uh, the first time I really was impacted by the Quran. And right. again, I mean, I'm a child, you know. So, I mean, the first time I read the Quran in English, obviously, because I didn't know Arabic growing up, and it actually impacted me was Surah Yusuf. And I mentioned the story of my discovering of Surah Yusuf as an 11-year-old um, kid uh, and, and ever since then. So yes, all of us have have, have a special uh, journey uh, with the Qur'an via Surah Yusuf and even with life, to be honest. SubhanAllah, that's so amazing because I was 11 as well when I first heard <laughs> Surah Yusuf. My, my, world, dad, alhamdulillah. my dad told me it and I just couldn't sleep, you know. It's such it's an exactly, amazing story. Exactly what I wrote. <laughs> Ajib. Really? That's 
it's in the introduction. You can see this already been sent to the publishers that that night, my mind was just filled with images and just the, you know, the boy, the, 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 what stuck to me the most was the boy in the well, because I was 11, like, you know, the boy in the mm -hmm. well, I just exactly. like the whole night thinking about the story of Yusuf or not. And ever since then, it's been a fascinating journey for me. Alhamdulillah, mashallah, interesting, interesting overlap, alhamdulillah. But I think the most amazing thing or the thing that kind of, that stays with you, I guess, is that in the end, you know, al-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen, right? I think that kind mm -hmm. of, that message can, is so sustaining for us mm -hmm. human beings, right? Because if you live long enough, you're going to go through trials, you're going to go through ups and downs, you're going to meet all sorts of people who are going to hurt you, who are going to mm -hmm. lift you up. And at the end of all of that, if you know that you doing the right thing and be, you know having taqwa yep. is going to give you success. That's the message of the story, isn't it? And, and that's what Allah was telling the Prophet yeah. You have to go through the well and the prison to get to the ministership. That's really the story of life. Yeah. You have to go through the struggles and the trials. And next time you're in any painful situation, think of Yusuf in the well. Think of Yusuf in the prison. Think of Yusuf with the false accusations. And one of the reasons the story very much appealed to me in the Medina phase was you're, you're aware of the, not going to details here, but the fitan that took place in the Medina era and it's still taking place online now, right? And that the state at that time, I was one of the main uh, objects of attack, you know, the slanders and the misreputations and whatnot. And that's why I wanted to teach Surah Yusuf in, uh, in the Masjid Tawheed that this whole notion of slander and I also taught the slander of Aisha because Aisha, of that, yeah. because I felt the pressure of, you know, the, you know, you know what's going on online even now with other people, not necessarily with me, but the, the, those two stories at that stage of my life resonated because of the slander, right? But again, that's the beauty of the seerah and the Quran that there's different um, uh, mo modes of resonation. There's different levels of, of interaction and whatever you're going through in life, the seerah and the Quran are going to appeal to you and are going to give you the comfort that is needed. SubhanAllah, yeah. And I, I think that's why it's so important that everyone, every Muslim, regardless of whether you're a scholar or a student of knowledge or you consider yourself to be a beginner, needs to study the seerah, right? Mm -hmm. Especially. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. and and I hope that, inshallah, your book will will be something that people, you know, reflect on, benefit from and... So JazakAllah Khairan for that. And speaking of, uh, I guess, difficult times, uh, I wanted to, you know, pick your brains about the whole lockdown situation and what you personally and how you think, you know, the Ummah should be reflecting on what's just happened. You know, we've been through a period where none of us could have predicted. Um, for many of us, it was the first time we were like, having to be with our families for so long as well, you know, yeah. without any kind of a break, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, what are any of the, I don't know, lessons, epiphanies um, that you've had uh, during this lockdown period? That's a, a very profound question. I mean, for me, when the lockdown began and for quite a period of time and still, the main lesson for me was the rububiyyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who could have ever imagined 
between a morning and an afternoon, basically. The entire world shut down, basically. Because of a virus that, if you actually calculate it, its physical mass around the globe is not even half a cup or something. You know, the actual mass of the virus, when you actually put all of it together, it is insignificant. And yet, we saw when Allah Azza wa Jal wills something, how quickly it, it comes into effect. So to me, that was definitely, and of course, you know this, but again, it's like Ibrahim alayhi salam says, you know, uh, you know, of course, we believe that Allah is the Rabb. Of course we do. But to see that power, to see how weak we are, that we are the Abd and Allah is the Rabb. And when Allah says, Kun fayakun, everything happens. To me, that was, and it still remains to be at, uh, just absolutely just it affects one's iman to the level that you really are humbled in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it increased my iman exponentially and of course again Ibrahim as story comes in it's not as if you doubt but there is the sense of humanity's collective arrogance that we saw you know mm-hmm. pre-COVID especially mm-hmm. western arrogance especially American arrogance just the arrogance of we can do whatever we want no, you can't. Invincibility, right? The feeling yeah. of invincibility. Yeah, this, yeah. This, this level, mm. this level of we we are the rulers of the world. You know, right? That it's like the people of the past who boasted, "Who is stronger than us?" And Allah says, "Don't they see Allah who created them is stronger than them?" So to me, that was definitely and remains the number one lesson. Obviously, on a personal level. So for the last, how long now? Decade, really. I have been traveling every second weekend, every weekend. Like my, I'm a frequent flyer over a million miles, you know, every single program. I'm with like platinum elite, whatnot. So traveling, traveling, traveling. And I kept on saying, I need to cut back. I need to cut back. But then I kept on saying, no, but I need to do da'wah and I need to do this and that. And I have not sat in a plane for seven months now. For, and this is the longest period of mm. my life since my Medina years that I have not traveled, right? And I realized, hey, I'm actually in many ways more productive. So that's been a very mm-hmm. big, and inshallah, I hope inshallah, once this COVID thing um, finishes, that I'm not going to resume the traveling to the level that I used to because I do need to cut back. It's just been very, uh, it's a nuisance to travel. You know, you waste, there's a lot of time wasted, a lot of issues happen and whatnot. And I, I would like to cut back on my travel. So this has been a very uh, eye-opening thing that you can accomplish a lot, reading and writing and researching. Another uh, blessing that we should thank Allah for, especially because of the COVID, is technology. And I said this in one of my first khutbas after COVID. Imagine, and I, I think mm-hmm. you as well are old enough to remember a pre-internet world and a pre-Google world and a pre-cell phone world. Imagine... Yeah if this type of calamity had happened in the 80s, and I remember the 80s very well. I mean, you know, imagine mm-hmm. if we didn't have that technology where we can have this live Skype conversation or, you know, uh, internet or online, how difficult the world would be. You know, my children are waking mm-hmm. up now and they're going to go to school in their bedrooms, right? right. They're going to be in mm-hmm. school all day from here, all of them. Mm-hmm. Even my eldest in university is logging on, you know, uh, yeah. online, you know. Imagine Same if here, yeah. In the 80s or even 90s, what would have happened? So that's another thing we'd benefit. Uh, in terms mm-hmm. of family, you're absolutely right, subhanAllah. And for all of us, let's be honest, let's not sugarcoat. It's been a roller coaster ride to mm-hmm. be with the spouse and the children so intimately, literally under lockdown for the first few weeks. We were not even exiting except 
once or twice a week to go get groceries, right? That has not happened ever, you know? So you have to rediscover how to live with your loved ones because Absolutely. Yes. walking out every day for hours actually provides you a respite from, from that company. And mm-hmm. alhamdulillah, in my case, it's been a beautiful experience. I'm not going to say it's been fully rosy because that's that's lying. Everybody knows. I mean, that's what marriage and children, I mean, it's negotiating, uh, you know, priorities and, and managing to live and whatnot. And it's been an interesting uh, last seven, eight months. And alhamdulillah, in my case, I thank Allah, alhamdulillah, you know, I'm very, very blessed to have a, a loving family. We are, alhamdulillah, living together. My parents are with me as well, which is a huge blessing uh, that they moved in pre-COVID or else I don't know what I would have done, you know? So uh, mm-hmm. we are all together, alhamdulillah. It's been uh, a very, very beautiful and blessed time. And yes, there have been things you need to work around and you learn to do that, alhamdulillah. So in, in my case, uh, it's been a huge blessing that I wasn't able to spend that much time with my family because of the traveling now, because of COVID, uh, last seven, eight months, literally lockdown. So uh, we've instituted, you know, our little family practices together that we were not able to do before, uh, conversations, whatnot. So overall, it's been uh, very, very positive. Now, I know for some families it has not been. And I've been hearing horror stories and getting emails. And mm-hmm. that's, that's very difficult to hear for me. Um and all I can say is uh, those couples that are that are going through problematic times and whatnot, they need to turn to Allah and try their best. I mean, it's this the during times of fitna, the real you is discovered, right? Yeah. And so for mm-hmm. some families, mashallah, they discovered <clears throat> bliss and love and peace more than they thought existed. But unfortunately for other families, that is not the case. And they have to deal with it as they have to deal with it. May Allah make it easier for, for all of us. So these are some of the lessons. I hope that's that's kind of what your, you know, the question was catering to that type of responses. Yeah, definitely. And and what about as an imam? Like, uh, I think, was it my imagination that you, I, I saw online that you're taking some shahadas during this time? Unbelievable. During the lockdown? Unbelievable. We have increased the number of shahadas. And really? I, yes. And I think the, the reason for this actually is self-evident, but it's just when you see it, it's very, very pleasing. The mm-hmm. same reason why shahadas increase in prison. Right, the the number of converts in prison is very high in America. I don't, I don't know how it's in England, but in generally speaking, you know, yeah, the yeah. conversion rate is astronomical inside a prison compared to outside. Why? Because when you're under lockdown, when all of the bars and nightclubs, when all of the socialization is shut down, your mind has to take you know kick in. You have you're you're now right. forced to think, right? To so think. what a cell yeah. does is it liberates your mind. If your mind was under drugs, was in crimes, was following shahawat and whatnot, and I'm not advocating the American prison system, it has huge problems, but I'm saying mm. every problem, every negative has some positives. And of the mm. positives is when a person is completely desensitized to higher purposes of life, right? Living like, as Allah says in the Quran, inhum illa kal an'am. When they're living like cattle, you take mm. them away from that environment and you throw them in a room with nothing, so then they're not going to live like cattle anymore. They will discover their humanity. And as they discover their mm-hmm. humanity, their brains are going to kick in. And they're going to start thinking, why am I here? What am I doing? And they're going to turn to spirituality. So in the COVID crisis, what happened is a similar thing is that people are stuck at home. How long are you going to watch Netflix? How long are you going to just, just do nothing in your house? Yes. You start thinking. Exactly. And you start thinking about 
COVID. You start thinking about the power of God. You start thinking about, you know, how weak and frail human beings are. And that's your fitrah kicking in. And so people start reading and researching. And so alhamdulillah, every week we've had a few shahadas here. And I've heard this, I've heard the same in other masajid uh, in Dallas and in North America as well. So it's been an interesting, and, and they call up the masjid a number of times. In one case that went viral, that I literally just walked to the masjid and there was a, a, a lady with her children there, you know, and she wanted mm -hmm, to take yeah. shahada. I think you saw that video as well. Yes, and that's the it, was just, it just so happened, she drove to the masjid not even knowing if anybody's going to be there. You know, that's how much you wanted to embrace Islam. And Qaddar Allah, I had one of my recordings, you know, so the staff, one or two of the staff was there and I walked in and she was outside. So, okay, we just did the shahada right then and there. Alhamdulillah. You know, it's interesting, uh, interesting world. And again, these are some of the the, the the positives that we see in this negative time frame. And inna ma'al usri yusra is what Allah says in the Quran. You're always going to find positives in every, every negative situation. SubhanAllah, I think it's so true what you mentioned about Rububiyyah because it was as if humanity was forced to acknowledge and notice Allah's Rububiyyah, right? And that, that arrogance, yeah. how can you possibly be arrogant in the COVID crisis? How? How? I mean, we still don't have the vaccine. And once the vaccine is quote unquote discovered, it's going to take a year. And we still don't know the after effects of that vaccine because it's going to take another few years, right? And the after effects of COVID, how can anybody possibly be arrogant, you know, at, at this stage? And that's why, subhanAllah, those that are still yani, arrogant and kuffar and mulhida and, 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 and atheists at this stage, I honestly think, yani, what hope is there unless Allah guides them? Like, how can you possibly not see the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and just think that this is all a coincidence and coming out of nowhere. And if anybody believes that, how can they not deserve the eternal punishment? I mean, I know that's not the talk here today, but one of the main issues that comes is eternal punishment. How is it fair? What not? And the response is it depends on the crime. And look at the crime, the sheer arrogance of assuming that you understand and know everything in light of, of the COVID crisis. If you can reject a higher power in this time, why do you not deserve the, the punishment from that higher power? So anyway, I know that was a totally separate point, but I'm writing it. That's a great point, Jazakallah Khairan. And actually, you highlighted another very important thing, and that is, I think, for the believer, no matter what happens, whatever situation befalls you, uh, your work still carries on, right? It, your mode of work, your mode of output might change, mm -hmm. but the work carries on. And I think... Um, you always remember. discover ways to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and benefit <clears throat> mm -hmm. humanity. Simple as that. These are the two main principles, right? Your ibadah and then your uh, giving back uh, to, to, to people. And during the COVID crisis, this was changed. Even the ibadah was changed. Because again, it happened before Ramadan, remember, right? And to me, that was a very interesting Ramadan. Like it really, before Ramadan, I couldn't imagine Ramadan. I mentioned this in my lectures. I could not imagine Ramadan <clears throat> without Taraweeh and without the community because every year of my life for me, and when I said this, I know some sisters, they said, welcome to the club. Like, you know, <laughs> so that kind of, I understand now because I never imagined a Ramadan without community, right? For me, Ramadan is associated with Taraweeh every single day of my life, every Ramadan, I mean, the only time you pray taraweeh at home is when you're sick, you know, for me. It's mm -hmm. like the, the concept of Ramadan, not praying behind an imam, <clears throat> not listening to the Quran, not seeing the throngs of people, the packed communities. And I was a bit terrified, like, how am I going to do this Ramadan? And I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to say that 
you know, uh, it was better in every aspect because it wasn't. But it was better in some aspects. Yes, it was yes. definitely better in some aspects. And I appreciated certain things that I had never appreciated before. You know, yeah. and so, you know, I, I look forward to when we can go back to our normal Ramadan, no problem. But I'm not going to say that I regret it at all, this previous Ramadan and, our, and what we didn't have because I was gifted things that I never had before this Ramadan, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, in other words, all of us, were functioning in autopilot, right? Hmm. And suddenly the situation made us have to shift, have to relook at everything. And <clears throat> I like that analogy. That's a very good analogy. Yeah. In many ways, Ramadan was semi-autopilot. Like right. when you get into the mood, every the mode, everybody's doing something. You're just pushed right. along, right? Yes, it's and like a machine. Exactly. This Ramadan, we had to switch off autopilot and hold on to the steering wheel and navigate our spirituality through this month. That's a profound example, and it fits perfectly with uh, with the message I'm trying to convey, which is that you needed to do something else. And in that was its own joy along with its own struggles. It's a two-way street, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that it also highlighted was actually it made me grateful and made me realize some of the investments that I'd made prior to this situation. And I'll give you an example. So the fact that my son, you know, I didn't, he memorized Quran and he had some practice in leading prayers, all of that, you know, it meant that we were like, it's your turn now, Yusuf, you know, you've got to, you've got to be the imam, you've got to take us through this Ramadan, you know. And obviously the investment for that had been made for many, many, many years. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. But it, it feels like, subhanAllah, sometimes, you know, these situations that come, with their difficulties, they help you to realize and be thankful for the investments you've made. You know, sometimes you don't necessarily see the benefits of immediately. Yeah, Alhamdulillah, that's a beautiful point as well. That the the thamara of all of those years of of and I I know as a parent, um, even though my wife takes more charge in this, but the 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 hassle of having the children memorize the Quran, the daily struggle and the routine struggle, and whatnot, yeah. subhanAllah. So to to hear or to to experience the sweetness of the fruits of that, this Ramadan allowed that to come out, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. Yes, alhamdulillah. So jazakallah for your thoughts on all of that. And so, Sheikh, I wanted to talk about, you know, when we look around the world today and I know myself as an Islamic law student, um, I'm doing postgraduate study in Islamic law. One of the things that really strikes you is that, okay, we have all of these nation states. We have, you know, in varying degrees, they're Islamic and, you know, some of them have hybrid legal systems or most of them have hybrid legal systems where, you know, French civil codes and English legal systems have been blended and then Sharia is a source of law. And, you know, the whole Muslim Ummah has changed to such a degree, okay? And having lived in a Muslim country as well, and, you know, when you first go to a Muslim country, you kind of have this, I think, uh, utopian image of what it's going to be like, right, to live there until you live there. And then you can see... And then see... you come rushing back home, thanking Allah for many of the issues that you took for granted uh, in the lands that we live in. Yeah, it's been there, done yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you notice the good as well. You know, there is a lot of good, a lot of khair in the exactly. Muslim Ummah. But at the same time, you can see the years of neglect 
decades of neglect, the effects of colonialism, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't end really, like if you were to analyze it. So as a Muslim today, we're living in the West, you know, what do you think our mindset should be when we look at the Ummah? You know, uh, people can sometimes feel overwhelmed. You can feel helpless. You can feel like I have no role to play. Who am I? You know, yeah. So, so people can direct their, you know, energy and blame towards leaders, scholars, towards the colonialists, towards what the West. What should we be doing as Muslims? Do we have any role? Is there a blueprint? You know, because uh, sorry, just to elaborate on the question a little bit. Looking at studying fiqh, you know, I studied Hanafi and Hanbali fiqh, and just just reading some of the books of the scholars, you, you get the impression that they kind of expected Muslims to be in the situation where, you know, they had the khilafah, there was, there was rulership, there was, everything would be established and it would continue to be that way. And very little, it seems, has been written about a time such as ours where millions of people are literally living as minorities, right? Over a hundred. Right. And, and, and just the whole political landscape has completely changed. Mm -hmm. So did the scholars of the past give us any guidance regarding this? Or is this very much a modern day thing that we're all going to have to grapple with? Please give us your thoughts and your advice. Obviously, this is a question that doesn't even have one answer to it, right? And if mm. you ask 50 people who have trained in Islam, ulama, academic scholars, you will get 50 responses. There is mm. no one answer to the problems that you've raised. And I am somebody who takes a very different approach. I actually believe that multiple answers are healthy. And what I mean by this is, it is healthy for the ummah to have a diversity of responses to this uh, current problem. It is healthy for some movements to be far more political and to actually aim for a political establishment, even though me personally, as everybody is aware, I'm not that involved with those movements, but I see some good in that. And I see that they are bringing up a notion that is very healthy to have. It's also mm -hmm. healthy for others to talk about, you know, issues of Aqidah all the time. And I came from such a movement 20 years ago. Okay. It's also healthy for yet other movements to worry about maybe issues that some might be considering to be trivial or whatnot, but they remind us, Hey, look, there is an aspect of the Sunnah you should be thinking about whatever it might be. There's khair, inshallah, in, in the broad mainstream uh, uh, movements that are following the Qur'an and Sunnah, even as some of them might prioritize certain things that others are not prioritizing. I think we need to look at the broader picture that not everybody has the same mindset. You see, I'm actually looking at it from a psychological standpoint. So if you look at the diversity of spectrums and movements and even... I don't want to get into too, too much trouble, even a little bit of theological spectrums within Sundism, even outside of Sundism, you find certain mindsets are attracted to certain movements. There's a predisposition, right? Certain, Personalities, I think. Yeah, exactly. You can yeah. even 
personality types almost. Some people are more spiritual by nature. Some people are more academic. Some people are more into certain issues than others. Some people are more political. This is even amongst the Sahaba. Some people are more into, uh, you know, military expeditions. And so, so Abu Hurairah and Khalid and Walid are not the same, you know. And let there be a diversity within the overall umbrella of wanting to please Allah via following the sunnah of the messenger of Allah. You know, so the broad Sunni theology and even non-Sunnis might be wrong in many things. That doesn't mean they're outside the fold of Islam and they might have some khair in some of what they do, even as they have mistakes. So there are gradations of, of obviously orthodoxy. And I'm somebody who has now come to a position in my life that I don't believe that you know, orthodoxy is defined by a narrow group of ulama of one land. I don't believe that anymore. And I believe that there is khair across the ummah and across the spectrum of uh, movements and across the spectrum of mainstream uh, Sunnism. And even outside of Sunnism, not everybody is evil shaitan, you will find khair and good in people who, anybody who lowers his head to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who maintains his wudu, la yuhafidu ala wudu illa mu'min, right? As Ibn Taymiyyah himself towards the end of his life, he did not make takfir of anybody who prayed. And of course, Yes, there's one or two groups that might pray and they have absolute kufr beliefs. Let's ignore that. Generally speaking, the ummah, alhamdulillah, is believing in Allah and His Messenger and the finality of the messengership. So if a person finds comfort in one particular strand or movement and they're living their lives overall with taqwa and iman, inshallah there is khair in them and they will cause some good in the ummah. To expect there to be one specific narrow solution to the entire global problem, I think that is a level of arrogance that we need to rid ourselves of. It is healthy for some people to always talk about aqidah because even if they're obsessed at some level, it causes others to think. Right now, when mm -hmm. I say healthy, I don't mean they're right. I'm saying there is some khair in what they're doing. It is healthy for others to always be talking about a khilafa, 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 and let them do that because it reminds us, hey, you know what? Yeah, there was an ideal. There is something that you know people should be thinking about, and how do we think about it in the modern world? So we don't want it to be absent from our discourse. Now, what you choose to do, what I choose to do. It depends on many factors. Of them is our context, right? In some lands, you cannot get involved in certain movements. So maybe you shouldn't mm -hmm. because it might get you killed, or your family killed, you know? It also depends on where you live. Uh, and, and this is very clear to anybody. Living in a Muslim-majority land versus living in a Muslim-minority, automatically that dictates your, your priorities. Also, uh, your own personal interests. So I am somebody who is very interested in academics and knowledge and, and whatnot. That doesn't mean that that is the only way forward, right? We all have our roles to play. I gave a lecture about Hassan ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu, and I said that arts is a part of our religion. Hassan ibn Thabit was the artist, the stereotypical artist of that uh, generation. By artist, I mean, mm -hmm. of course, the humanities, not yani drawing, yani uh, poet. A creative. Right? He, he was a creative. He was right? a creator, a content creator, right? And yeah. he was not known, not for ilm, not for bravery, not for anything else, not for being in the battlefield, as you know, in, in the famous battle of the Khandaq. And he was in another part of the city. Listen, my, it's in my lecture, you can listen to that. But he had a role to play as well. So we should, we should rid ourselves of the notion that we all have the same role to play. On the contrary, we, we have different roles to play. And every one of us should think about, yes, the global picture, as the saying goes, you know, think globally, act locally, and see what we can do to better 
our situation and especially our families and friends. This is the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, Palestine is an issue. The Uyghurs are an issue. Syria is an issue. The globe is an issue. Nation state is, is an issue. But in the end of the day, Allah is not going to ask us directly, what did you do to solve the Israeli-Palestinian crisis? Because I can't do anything for that. But Allah will ask us, you know, what did you do in your own personal sphere of influence, your own children, your own family and friends? So I think to, to answer this question, rather... Rather than asking ulama, we should first introspect and ask ourselves, what is my passion? What is my talent? And then ask the ulama based upon my passions and talent. Look, I have wealth. I have knowledge. I have medical skills, whatever the person is going to say. This is what I can give to the ummah, right? This is my passion. A doctor, subhanAllah, how much khair is being done in America by Muslim doctors right now, right? Our da'wah now in terms of, you know, post 9-11 has been one of the best because I don't know in England what is the case in America. Around ten percent of the medical, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, staff and whatnot are Muslims. Because uh, I don't know in England. I'm not hundred percent sure. I think yeah. in America. I think, I think it's a large percentage. Well. Very popular in the Muslim community, right? So even yeah. though percentage wise we're around one or two percent, in the medical field we're around ten percent. Subhanallah, we are overrepresented. And across the country, there have been tributes to Muslim doctors and Muslim, you know, staff and whatnot because because of our representation and because of our work, work ethic. So, what a doctor can do during COVID is being a doctor, demonstrate the reality of our faith. Therefore, to answer your question, I will simply say I am somebody who is trying to look at the broader picture, and I'm trying to say that there is no one answer. We all have different roles to play. We can all contribute something, and to, to, to finish this question, we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We thank Allah that we are responsible for ourselves and our immediate influence only. We're not responsible for anything beyond this. So rather than get depressed about what I cannot solve, which is the global problems, let us become optimistic about what I can solve, which is the local issues, which is my local masjid, which is my you know circle of influence in my friends, neighbors, in my colleagues at work. How can I better yeah, the, the impression of Islam amongst them? These are small things that inshallah ta'ala, if we do collectively, they will create a global change, number one. But number two, even if you don't live to see the global change, you have done enough to save yourself on the day of judgment. And that's really all that counts because we're not going to attain Jannah in this world. We have to rid ourselves of that notion that, that we're going to attain ultimate izzah and ultimate power and ultimate. We might not see that until the Mahdi comes. And even when the Mahdi comes, it's not going to be as if the world is a utopia. And it, people need to understand even in prophetic Medina, I just gave it um, my Q&A last week. Uh, the question was very sensitive about the, the rape issue in Pakistan. And I answered that there was a rape in Medina, in the prophetic Medina. Hadith is in Sunan Abi Dawood. You're not going to create perfection in this world. That's not going to happen. No matter what you do, whether it's knowledge, whether it's politics, whether it's da'wah, whether it's tabligh, whether it's this, it's not going to, your goals are perfection, excellence, keep them, but realize you're never going to attain it. That's not going to happen. So the goal is not this dunya. The goal is to show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we tried the best in this dunya. That's what the goal is. And if we simply try the best to do whatever we can with whatever we have, wherever we are, if we strive for that level of ihsan, guess what? 
we will attain the ultimate goal. That's the goal. Whoever is protected from the fire of hell and enters the paradise, then that person has been successful. And we thank Allah we can attain that success regardless of where we are, regardless of what position we're in, which land we are in. Imagine, and I want you to think about this, the viewers here. No matter what your situation is, you have the opportunity to gain Jannah to Firdaus. No matter how much money or little money you have, how good your health is, bad your health is, how loving your family, how hating your family is, how despised the community is around you, whether you're being tortured or whether you have the freedom. This is the beauty of our faith. We all have equal access to Firdaus al-A'la and to Jannah, to Jannat. We have equal access, not necessarily the same road, but equal access. You see the point here. The roads might be different, where you are, what you are, what you're doing. But the access is given to all of us. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. And Allah Azza wa has given us all the capability to get that access if we want to do so, right? If we want to have istiqama on this deen, then inshallah, Allah will give us that istiqama and we're going to be able to earn Jannah. I don't know if that answered exactly your question, but that's the thoughts that came to my mind. So I think what you one of the things you highlighted there is that for each and every well, first of all, <clears throat> I think it's one of the great things about the Muslim community worldwide is that we have so much talent. We, mm -hmm. it's, it's just amazing. Like any anyone who's had to uh, manage people or try to run a project and had to hire people, and I mean, I feel so proud of our community really like the, the range of talent that we have in the coming generation especially and how i'm hoping we're bringing up a new generation that is a little bit more knowledgeable as well you know so like the baseline standard of knowledge has mm -hmm. hopefully is going to hopefully be increased in terms of islamic knowledge and that will of course affect all of our work right and secular knowledge, both knowledges. I mean, you see the previous mm -hmm. generation to this one. Generally speaking, alhamdulillah, there's a lot of positives. Again, you can concentrate on the negatives. You can talk about the TikTok generation and the attention span of the Twitter and whatnot. And there's a lot of negativity. There's no question about that. But if you look at the positive, there is no question that there is globally an Islamic revival going on. Anybody who studies history, compare... Islamic movements of the 60s and 70s. Compare Karachi and Cairo mm -hmm. of the 60s and 70s to modern day Karachi and Cairo. There's a lot of negatives. Nobody's taking that away. But I will dare tell you with, with I think I think nobody can deny this, that overall there is a sense of Islamic identity far more than it was one generation ago. When my father was my age, when my father was in university, let's say, right? You know, uh, when my mother was there, she was telling me, in the 60s, nobody wore hijab at the University uh, of Karachi. Yeah. Whatnot. It was like, she goes, maybe two people in the entire campus. You know, the oh, imagine. Did you say Karachi? I thought you were saying in America. SubhanAllah. No, in Karachi, yeah. at the university, right? Because yeah. that, that liberal sense, if you go to university, right? That you, yeah. you know, and, and Cairo as well. That yeah. listen to the talks of the people that it's as if it was non-existent in those circles. Right, mm -hmm. so the, the the and not that again. I don't want to be obsessed just with the hijab. It's just an overall mm -hmm. notion of 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 being aware of one's Islamic identity. Yeah, right? well, in it is a symbol. It's a symbol. 
It's a symbol of religiosity. It is a symbol. Let's not deny yeah. this as well. Let's not yeah. let's not make it the only symbol, but at the same yeah. time, overall, if our brother is going to the masjid regularly and, and mashallah demonstrating the sunnah, it's a symbol that there's something in their minds about Islam. That's all that it is. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're pious, mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're angels, doesn't mean they have a, don't have a lot of other problems. But overall, when a brother is involved with the MSA or the ISOC and going to the masjid, when a sister is involved with it shows. Because they don't have to be involved with the ISOC, do they? They don't have to be involved with the, mm. with the with the masajid. The fact that they are overall demonstrates, and that's something that, inshallah, we cannot deny globally that there is an awareness of uh, the Islamic identity in this generation that is far more pronounced than it was in the last generation. Yes, <clears throat> I remember my, when my father came to the UK, he was involved in a, one of the first Muslim institutes and he was like the alim that they brought over, right, to help them um, navigate Islamically their work. Mm -hmm. um, and and now, alhamdulillah, I feel like the very members of those institutes are a lot more knowledgeable than the you know the, the previous generation would have been. And there's also this new ph phenomenon of, I would say, hybrid professionals. I think that's what they call them, where you have People who've studied deen to a high level, you know, uh, like completed the alimiya or at least a degree in uh, sharia or something. And along with that, they, you know, they're lawyers or they're in Islamic finance or they're doctors. And so it kind of, you know, informs their work. Uh, so I think that that's also a new thing. And not just that, but this is the first generation of born and raised in the western world having studied uh islam and again it's right. just it's just the circumstance that allah chose us to be of that generation like it's not something we decided this yes. is the generation you know like me and you and others of this generation like our parents came we were born here it's allah's yeah. other that we happen to be born we are the i mean i remember the first masjid of the 70s of america i still remember I mean, of houston my father founded it it just so happened that, okay, Allah blessed us to be of that generation that we were born and raised here, and then we decided to go. I grew up, and our Imam or Mulvi Sahib did not speak uh, English at all. The first, the person who taught me the Quran, you know, the Qaidun and whatnot, right? He's still alive, mashallah, in his late 70s now. We brought him over in the 70s as the first, you know, Mulvi Sahib of, uh, of, of, of Houston, Texas, and I grew up not listening to an English khutbah. And that's actually one of the reasons deep down inside that I went to Medina, to be honest, that I didn't know my faith the way that I wanted to know. And I didn't have anybody that I could. I, I didn't, by the way, I didn't go to Medina to, to become a scholar. I didn't. I went to Medina to lift my ignorance. I went to Medina to study my faith. One thing led to another and I am where I am now, but it wasn't my intention to go down this path. You know, it was just, there was nobody here that I really... I, 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 and Allah knows best, if there were an actual person I could study with full time and I could relate mm. to, maybe I wouldn't have gone to Medina, right? But there wasn't. And so we were the first generation to actually then from our lands go overseas and then come mm. back. And that I think as well is a new uh, phenomenon that speaking fluent English, understanding the cultures that we live in, and that comes with its baggage, its responsibilities, its pros and cons, its time of deep analysis and thinking of what we're doing. I mean, I don't want to sound too <clears throat> pompous or arrogant about our generation, but I firmly believe that what we do in this generation is going to dictate the next hundred years or so. 
because we are the ones planting the seeds for the next hundred years. Right now, what we're going to do, because we are the ones that are fully, and we're the only generation, by the way, that is fully acclimatized with East and West. I know you speak fluent Urdu and, and your father's language, and so do I. You know, I'm pretty sure your children, my children, I know my children, <laughs> they've kind of 20%, you know what I'm saying? What's going to happen in that generation, right? Yeah. We are comfortable in being in both worlds completely. And, and we understand both worlds and we go back and forth between both worlds. That's going to change. And so what we do to set up the future world of our side, the, the, the foundations we put, the parameters we put, the seeds that we plant, they're going to have a massive impact. I, I, mm -hmm. I could be wrong, but that's, that is my sense uh, uh, of the direction we're heading and Allah knows best. And that, well, what that does is it makes me think doubly, triply before anything that I engage with. It makes me think long and hard about the repercussions, about, uh, and this is of course a famous topic of theology and usul al-fiqh, al-thawabit What is allowed to change? What is allowed to, or what is not allowed to change? And we see a lot of this in the online discussions and debates and whatnot. And sometimes there's no right and wrong answer. It's a gray area. And time is going to tell. Anyway, I, I am meandering now. Uh, well, Sheikh, uh, one of the things that you just speaking brought into my mind was, you know, what you just said about, subhanAllah, the, the next generation and what the kind of seeds that we plant um, I think one of the positive seeds that have been planted in our generation is uh, a less polarity, even though the online world might, you know, make it look like there's a lot more polarization. In reality, I think, you know, being at university now, I'm seeing there's not the polarities, the, the groups, you know, the, the sectarian divisions in the way that there were, I don't know, back in the 90s, right? Um, sure. And I think one of the reasons for this actually, believe it or not, 9-11 and the politicization of, of dynamics of who we are. I mean, we were put under pressure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was yes. very active in my MSA, my ISOC, pre-90s. I mean, sorry, pre-9-11, in the 90s. And that era, it was a very, I'm not going to, again, I'm not somebody who criticizes the past. I am who I am because of all of my phases. I thank Allah for the phase I went through. It, it shaped my identity. We learn from the lessons. Let's just put it that way, right? We wouldn't do mm. that again. And it did have some positives. Let's also be frank mm. here, right? That 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 identification with the firqa and a strand and a group yes. of us, uh, it, it kept us sane in a very chaotic world. Now, it created some inter-Muslim problems. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of my Islamic identity, I would not ever deny that being a part of that, that hardcore movement impacted me to be a proud Muslim. I'm going to say that frankly, like yeah. you know, feel I'm a part of a heritage way beyond the circumstances of my birth, way beyond the land that I live. Well, that that's one of the things that worries me about the the new generation now is that, like you said, like even though there were groups, people, it was almost as if those groups were necessary for our generation to kind of have an identity, you know, because Which is we. Why were, I'm not overly critical of the '90s. Yeah, I benefit from that, and I've, we were. I've never negated who I was or apologized for that. I've moved on. I keep on saying I've moved on. I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be here with this type of vision or mentality if I hadn't been through all of those phases. But we need to make sure that our children learn from our mistakes 
and their children will learn from their mistakes. So, you know, the, there's no denying that our children are going to face negatives that we did not face. And mm -hmm. this, this new notion of Islamic identity, so there was no notion of liberal Islam in the 90s. That just didn't exist mm -hmm. as a mainstream. It was very, very small. Now we do have these progressives that I'm, I've always been a vocal critic, critic of, even as my critics accuse me of being progressive, but that's this, the continuum spectrum here. Now we do have some serious interpretational issues of Islam, right? Foundational issues, morality, ethics, sexuality, marriage, uh, the issue of identity. We didn't have to face that in the 90s, not at all. Nobody in the 90s would say zina is halal. You get where I'm heading with this. you know. Nobody in the 90s said that, that it is completely Islamic to do that. Now our children are exposed to this and they come to me, sometimes even my own can say, why is it haram if such and such? Why is it a problem? And so-and-so says it's okay and they quote a Muslim. So we will have another problem of our generation, but my philosophy is every generation is going to have its unique problems. Every generation. It's not as if the 90s were unique in all of human history that they might have had unique problems, yes. But every generation is going to have to rise up to its challenges and we are going to try our best to minimize the dangers, but it is up to them as they grow up and, and, and take on these challenges. Allah, Allah, Allah Azza wa Jalla is always going to protect the deen. We just have to protect our children and, and, and our immediate circle of influence. And, and I think equip them, right? Equip them with the tools that they need. Because yeah. one of the Which, things I've noticed at mm. university is sometimes the lack of confidence, you know, that like, although a lot of our generation might, may have been quite hot-headed and outspoken, you know, at university um, and quite connected with, I would say, various Islamic ideologies. This new generation, one thing that worries me is because of the lack of, actually because of the unity, which is a good thing, okay? Um, sometimes there's a lack of clarity about, you know, where the lines are and, and how to no rebut a certain... It, it's painful yeah. because there's no denying that we were uber strict. There's no denying mm. that in the 90s. But then when you look at the current climate, subhanAllah, there's as if there's no boundaries of theology, of even iman and kufr, of gender issues, like the interactions that I see at the MSAs between brothers and sisters is frankly just un-Islamic. And it is the norm and the default. I don't know how it is in England, but in America, if they could see the 90s <laughs> MSAs, no doubt we went fanatical, no question, you know, complete barriers and shades and whatnot. But then this is like a flip opposite, right? And Allah Mustaan, yani this is this is a problem of mm -hmm. our times that so do you not fear that um, in some ways, because there are certain topics that scholars are not talking about so much anymore, right? Um, that then the next generation is losing out, you know, on that guidance. Uh, I think we yeah. need to, there, we need a to valid... be cognizant of the complete picture, you know, and, and I know that sometimes we look back at the 90s and like myself, I grew up, you know, my dad, he's from Deoband. He was a mufti from Deoband. And I didn't grow up with any groups. And I didn't even know that there were any Islamic groups, right? Until I went to Egypt. And uh, and I was, like, hit on the head with the different groups, I would say, right? Um, but 
uh, I think that was a nice kind of blissful existence to have for me, you know. But once I became aware of the different groups, one of the things I, I noticed was the strengths in the different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely with, you know, some of the groups who, especially the ones that emphasize Athida, etc. I think from them came that huge Dawa spirit, you know, like, yeah. Um, and, and the whole sort of emphasis on Tawheed and calling people to Tawheed. And, 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 and that doesn't necessarily, because I've been with the people of different groups now and studied with scholars of different backgrounds, which well, is another thing. Khair, within mainstream Sunnism, yeah. there's good, I, I can see, you know, the strengths of each of those communities, uh, including ones that might have seemed a bit harsh, you know, in the past, etc. You know, they from them has come uh, a lot of good as well. And yeah, I just worry sometimes that in trying to kind of distance ourselves from some of the negatives, you know, of that period, that our generation sometimes might neglect some of the good things that were there, neglect passing the on. I mean, listen, let me, mm-hmm. let me say something that is very awkward to say here, but it needs to be said. When I was my first khutbahs at the MSA back in the 90s, right? No matter how harsh we were, how naive we were, no matter who we invited of the hardcore scholars of that time, the max that could have happened as a reaction was that some people would have left our version of Islam. There was never a danger, by and large, of riddah. The problem that we have of this generation is riddah. And again, I'm speaking as somebody who's very aware that we have a major crisis of people leaving our faith, of the next generation. And the reasons they're leaving are many, one of them being that religious folks don't make sense to them. They're not appealing to their their sentiments or whatnot. So one of the reasons why myself and others have really toned down when it comes to online stuff. Now, if you meet me in person and you ask me my fatwas one-on-one, I'll assess you and I'll see. But generally speaking, we want to preserve their iman. And you're not going to do that by overtly harsh fatwas and ideas, Mm. right? So what I'm trying to say, and I could be wrong in this, but I I challenge anybody who's been active since the 90s uh, to now to to disagree with what what I'm about to say. And that is that there was no major fear of the 90s generation, me and you, leaving Islam by and large, right? Amongst my own extended friends and families of the 90s, of the MSAs and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. I really can't think of anybody that left Islam. But I know plenty of the next generation, plenty of some of our own students that we taught in our own institutes. I know plenty of the people, you know, my friends whose children now are doubting or leaving the faith. So given that dynamics, yes. Well, what do you I think have, is the main cause of that? Like, because uh, I've experienced that as well. I get phone calls from sisters, you know. How do we know that the Prophet وسلم, didn't just copy the Jews and Christians? That was recent. There's one, many reasons that I, I got. I think et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think one of them is simply the reality of following your society. Like Back in the 90s, all of these fawahish and whatnot were just coming. And even atheism was not something... Of course, people were atheists and whatnot. 
But the mainstreaming of it and the in-your-face and the open mockery of religion that is now happening across the globe, the assault by New Age, you know, mm -hmm. uh, atheists, you know, that mm -hmm. is yeah. that is the 2000s phenomenon, post 9/11 phenomenon, the outright attacks that this group is doing against all religions in general and especially Islam, it's new, and I feel that our young children are being exposed to shubuhat and also to mainstream atheism now that they get caught up in it. And it's unless it's so important, we, isn't it? As it's, I didn't hear you say that again. I was going to say it's so important, isn't it, as parents to create that space, the safe safety of the home for our children to be able to ask us anything. Which is why, again, I go back to the notion that you raised of being too soft and whatnot. It's because of that this that I really feel like Aisha said we, we implanted iman in their hearts before saying things were haram, right? That's mm -hmm. why you're not going to hear me give a blasting khutbah that is going to appease the 90s mentality of the hardcore. That's not going to happen because I don't view that as being wise. I don't view this in this day and age to just go full blast and, 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 and teach people aspects that they don't need to hear right now, right? Iman needs to be implanted in their hearts. We, the, the other issues of ethics and advanced law and whatnot, even advanced aqidah. I mean, again, my position has been always for the last 20, 15 years or so, 15 years definitely. Like, we need to stop this, this, this warfare between the various classical groups. Just get rid of it. The sifat issues, the maulid issues, whatnot. Just stop it. Leave it to students within seminaries. No doubt. That needs to be there. But amongst the khutab and durus, amongst the awam, amongst public social media, forget Ash'ari and Salafi and, and Maturidi and Athari, forget all of this. Just throw it out the window. They're all good people, inshallah, that love the Quran and Sunnah. We cannot create hatred amongst those abstract issues, you know, amongst uh, people that are the, the 2% or the 5% that's so religious, we're going to fight amongst ourselves. The 90% that's barely coming to the masjid, that has serious doubts about following the mm -hmm. Sharia, we're ignoring them and concentrating on our internal issues. So definitely yeah, I've so softened up, but I don't think it is being softened up. I think it is being wisening up. What adjective do you use, right? My my critics say watered down. I say, no, this is wisened up. You know, it's a matter mm -hmm. of your paradigm. This to me is hikmah, that you teach people at the level of their iman. And as Aisha said, the first thing we talk about is heaven and hell, Jannah and now. And by the way, look at my series that I've been doing for the last 15 years, right? The Seerah, the lies of the Sahaba, mm -hmm. right? Uh, heaven and hell, the Barzakh. This is what needs to be taught. Not Ash'ari versus Athari versus Sufi versus Salafi. That was the problem of the 90s, that we concentrate on the 1% that's coming. That stuff should not be discussed in public. Leave it to advanced students of Aqidah, and we discuss those issues, it is of no value anymore. Or I should say very little value. The problems that it causes in public are far greater than any uh, solutions that, that it solves. And Allah knows best. Yeah, and I think there were, there's a time and a place, isn't there, for time, place, audience, language. Yes, mm. all of this. Yeah, and, and like you said, like, I think in terms of personality, even scholars have different personalities, right? And sometimes, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, like, I remember as a young person, sometimes I needed to hear that harsh reminder, you know, and sometimes I needed to hear something softer. Yeah, it, like, it we need 
So the problem of social media is you cannot restrict your audience. You see, well, it, it really depends. So you, you speak to the person at their level, right? When somebody mm -hmm. comes to me, after a five, 10 minute conversation, I have a pretty good idea of where they stand in terms of their Iman, their religious level, whatnot. And based upon that, I can choose to be strict or quiet. But when I give a public lecture and puts on YouTube, I'm speaking to anonymous hundreds of thousands of people. And I cannot, I cannot appease all of them simultaneously. I can't, it's not going to happen. And I cannot preach to them at the level. And that's, if you look at a lot of the, I don't want to go down this route, but if you look at all of the internal bickerings and the refutations and whatnot, uh, and I'm speaking about uh, specifically about my stuff that happens, a lot of it is dealing with people don't understand that you need to speak at different places to different audiences in different languages. It's as simple as that. But YouTube does not differentiate. Right, and it puts everything there, and so the far right picks on clips that I have been speaking to Muslim audiences, very advanced aqidah, and they'll take something about shirk and tawhid. Oh, this guy is saying this and that. Okay, the hardcore, mashallah, they're gonna take a lecture I've given in front of a non-Muslim audience where I speak very generically and softly and say, "Oh, this guy's too soft with the, this and that." Each one is ignoring the context. The da'i needs to cater, doesn't change the message, but the wordings, the adjectives, the emphases, right? What is said, this is what hikmah is. And of course, our critics don't understand that you cannot say the same phrase for a private halaqa, advanced class, to the, for the khutbah even. You cannot. You have to, for the khutbah, you go down a little bit. That in front of a non-Muslim audience, even more so. But anyway, that was a totally different point. Well, I, I think regarding regarding that, I would say two thoughts that come to mind. One is that anytime you're going to be in the public space, you know, <clears throat> I, I think it's something that you said once in a lecture that I attended, um, a Maghrib lecture, I think you said, stop holding your scholars on up on pedestals. That's right? exactly I remember. my and, um, and I remember that day thinking, subhanAllah, it's so true. Like I've studied with so many different scholars and at the beginning, you have a very idealistic image of, of the sheikh. And by, you know, after a year or two, and, you know, there are certain areas where you feel the sheikh is, you know, a little bit shaky maybe, and other areas that are his strengths, certain things that, basically idiosyncrasies that people so have. So you learn that as you go, you know, as you interact with people on a one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one level, you understand that everybody has their strengths and weaknesses, right? And... But I would nobody say, is yeah. perfect. Nobody is perfect. Nobody's perfect. If you're going to wait for the perfect person, the perfect teacher, if you're going to wait for that, you're going to remain ignorant your whole life. If you're waiting for the teacher that has zero mistakes, you're never going to learn. And actually being a student of knowledge, you need to be patient. Without mm -hmm. patience, you just won't be, you won't last till the end of the year, right? Uh, let alone uh, five years of study or whatever. Um, that, so that's one thought that comes to mind. The other is, I would say, as, as a budding scholar myself, I think there is a place for criticism. And when people criticize us, I think it is, a, I would say, opportunity for us to reassess, you know? And, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Reassessing, actually, could I have said that a better way? Actually, was that really the wisest way of, for me to do there's that? No question, the criticism et cetera, et cetera, right? As we're all aware, without getting too specific, mm. the methodology of criticism and the uh, politicization of criticism. We've seen this with the Madhali Strand, for example, right? Suppose 
I, I, I discover you made a mistake in a lecture that you gave, right? And it's nobody's aware of that mistake. Nobody. You gave it. I happened to listen to the lecture. I saw a video clip or whatnot. Is mm -hmm. it Islamic to firstly make it go viral make it go viral secondly without even approaching you're saying hey do you even realize you made a mistake here do you even realize mm -hmm. you said something because mm -hmm. again i mean i speak i can't help but speak about what i'm doing like i give lectures almost every day of my life and a lot of times when i go places people are recording without even my knowledge not that but i don't even know and uh, something happened a few months ago where somebody took a clip of mine about something in a non-Muslim audience. And firstly, there was nothing wrong with what I said. But secondly, I understand I could have said it better, but you're put on the spot and you don't, and it's not something I intentionally crafted out there. And then thirdly, to read in the worst, like to literally take it its worst. All of this is clearly without a doubt un-Islamic. All that would have happened, there should have happened is somebody said, hey, did you really mean to say x y and z and i could have said no you know what i could have used better wordings end of story but to take that clip and then to make an entire you know uh expose read in hidden sentiments or what's happening now with accusing somebody of paganism i mean subhanallah anyway those people that are involved in mm -hmm. this entire vulture culture of of hunting for false and whatnot history has shown us over and over again they will burn themselves out they're not going to accomplish anything. And frankly, and I'm sorry to say this, but history shows us this. Most of them will not even be practicing Islam a decade from now. That's We see this. We've seen this with the Khawarij. We've seen this with the... May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide them. I think one of, the things, um, I mean. one of the things that my Shaykh always said, try to keep everyone within the fold. <laughs> try to keep people. Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah. there's a... There's this tendency to, like you said, highlight people's mistakes and try to almost like take pleasure in extracting them, right? And um, anybody who pleasure in considering mm. others to be evil is more evil than the people he's accusing of being evil. Because even if they're evil, for you to, or mistakes, for you to, to revel in their mistakes is a worse sin, generally speaking, than the mistake itself. For you to, go on a, a, a hunting mission to expose these mistakes and make it your life's goal. Allah Musta'an, this hadith in Abu Dawud is an authentic hadith that our Prophet said, do not go and follow the hidden mistakes of the believer because whoever does so, Allah will expose his hidden mistakes even if he's in his own house. Don't go ahead and, and do this type mm -hmm. of stuff. It's a very dangerous game that our brothers are playing. And I have... I, have, yeah, I make dua that... Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have 25, 30 years of experience, not 30, 25 years of experience in this. And I have been through very, very difficult times in my own life with um, one of the groups in Medina. And I have learned many lessons from my own troubles. And one of the main things that I've learned as we, let me end where we began, that our goal should be taqwa. Our goal should be our own personal ihsan. Our goal should be to never stoop to their level. And history has shown me personally that there can be times when you feel down, you feel punched and neglected and withdrawn from everybody seems against you. But subhanAllah, a time will come when the very people who had the upper hand are not even available or seen anywhere. They're gone from the picture. The, those that you thought controlled, those that you thought had, they're completely absent. 
and the one that they criticize and the one that they disparage and the one that they thought is the worst and whatnot, Allah has written for him something that was not written or expected or anything. So Allah is the one who decides. Allah is al-mu'iz and al-mudhil. Allah is the one that is al-khafid and al-basit, not these people. The izza doesn't come from me or you. It doesn't come from the critics or from those that are criticized. It comes from the one above. And so our job is to humble ourselves in front of Al-Aziz. And when we do so, then Allah can choose to grant izza to whomever He chooses to do so. And our goal in this dunya is Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana wa fil akhirati hasana wa qina adab al-nar. We make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives us the best of this world and the next world. And that he gives us Rabbana Hablana Azwajina Wadriyatina Kurrata Ain Wajalnalil Muttaqina Imama. Yes, we want to be someone whom the people of Taqwa consider to be a role model. How can we not want that? We want to be of those Wajalna Imama. Everyone should aspire, as Ibn Qayyim says, to Imama Fiddeen. And what that means is not necessarily uh being a scholar. It means the people of Taqwa view you as a role model. And that could come with knowledge, but there are people of taqwa that don't have knowledge. And the community respects and loves them for their taqwa and iman. So yes, we aim for that, but it is not something we aim for for the sake of the prestige and izza. It is, it is something we aim for that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala writes for us that qabul so that we are, as the hadith goes, uh, that the, the beloved of Allah uh, are the ones, the beloved in the heavens and beloved on earth. Our goal is the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we ask Allah azza wa to cause us to attain that goal. Well, Jazakallah Khairan, Sheikh. Um, I think you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, and I hope that, inshallah, we can uh, do this again sometime, you know, uh, because there, there are always um, new topics that we can discuss. And obviously, in one sitting, it's not always possible to cover inshallah, everything. Inshallah, no problem, inshallah. I There's a lot of topics, and especially um, uh, our uh, du'at, uh, female du'at, I always say that we need to, to address very awkward questions of feminism and gender, very awkward questions that... Mm. They're elephants in the room. They really are. Like, what do you do with ideas, tendencies versus a hadith? What do you do with the changing world uh, of genders? Not just gender roles, but genders <laughs> these days, right? And very right. awkward conversations. And the, but they need to be done. And our, our our young men and women of the next generation need to hear. I could be wrong. You could be wrong. But we need to be frank and discuss these issues. So, so Jazakumullah khairan, uh, brothers and sisters, for... Uh, for listening in and Jazakallah Khairan Sheikh Yasser for listening to our questions and giving us your thoughts we really appreciate your time and we appreciate um, for having the, me. the gems that you've shared with us Jazakallah Khairan so uh, brothers and sisters please do share this episode with others please tell them about this series because I'm hoping that inshallah we're going to be able to have some fruitful discussions with scholars ulama academics, leaders in our community through this forum. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik.